This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Great to be together. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you are new here, you you may have picked up uh, um, via the the video of the shuttle landing there. You know, we watched the cross come down. Um, But you may have picked up that uh, we're sort of um, on a journey. We're on our way somewhere. Uh, And so we're sort of on our way out of here and onto a new location, which has required us to meet in the evenings. And uh, so if you're new here, thanks for coming. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for coming out on an on an evening. We always thank new folks for for coming out. Uh, But I'd like to thank old folks for coming out as well. And by old folks, I don't mean uh, by age. I mean uh, that you're a regular Um, because uh, I I realize that this is not the most convenient circumstance. Uh, I realize that, and and I'm one with older kids. For those of you who have younger kids, uh, this is not a convenient circumstance at 5 o'clock. It's like, is it before dinner? Is it after dinner? No, it's in the middle of dinner. Yes. And so do we feed them before? Do we feed them after? And thank you for everyone who's serving young children uh, in children's ministry, young hungry children in children's ministry as well. But I know it's, 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 it breaks sort of the flow of what your day may be. It's unfamiliar. Uh, it's even for some of us perhaps a little bit disorienting. And uh, I just want to say we recognize that. I, I feel that, though I, I cannot relate. If you have really young kids, my kids are older. Um, but if you have especially napping kids or early-to-bed kids and school night, schools tomorrow kids and all that kind of stuff, uh, I just know it involves a reorientation of your life to be here, uh, to be here on time, to stick around after. Some of you are taking classes after this as well as we're offering classes. So uh, just on behalf of the other pastors, we just want to say we know that's a bit of a challenge. Um, and so thank you. Uh, thank you for making the adjustments necessary to worship with the people of God. It, it is the peak of our week to gather and worship our God. It is the high point of what he's called us to do and to be with his people. So for some of us, maybe this is very easy. Some of you are saying, what are you talking about? Man, I slept in. This is great. But for many, many, many of us, this is an adjustment. And so thank you for making it through the summer and now making it into the school year. It's, uh, it, we just really, really appreciate uh, appreciate all that you're doing to, uh, to get here. So thanks. We love you and are grateful for that. Well, we are in a series on 1 Peter, and we just opened it up last week, did, did an introduction uh, to 1 Peter, and we learned last week that Peter is writing to churches uh, in Asia Minor who are experiencing resistance for their faith. They are facing rejection. Uh, they are facing opposition, slander, uh, probably some social ostracism, probably, um, probably they're experiencing things that may be hindering their ability to make a living uh, because of their identification with Christ. And for some of them, depending on where they live, because of their unwillingness to worship the Roman emperor. And so they are experiencing some kind of resistance. It's probably not full out martyrdom. The, the language of the book doesn't sound like there's, you know, massive uh, deaths taking place or anything, but it's still a resistance. And And so Peter is writing to suffering churches, suffering people, and he is is defining them at the very beginning of the book in the first verse. 
He calls them elect exiles. And that's sort of the theme of the whole book, of understanding our identity. First of all, our identity in the world. As a believer in Jesus, uh, the scripture teaches that we are exiles. That is, we are foreigners. That is, our home is somewhere else, and we're sort of resident aliens uh, in another world. Our home ultimately is heaven. We're a part of another kingdom. We have a different king. We have a different values. Uh, we are not primarily tied to a nationality. We are primarily tied to the kingdom of God. And so uh, that is what he calls us, that we are exiles. We are outsiders. And in some cases, depending on what a culture is like, and even living on the margins because we identify with Jesus, and in some cases, even experiencing hostility because of our faith in Christ. And he says, but you are not only exiles, those who are kind of on the outside of your culture, but you are also elect. That is, you are chosen, elect by the Father. So you are the chosen. Chosen. The Lord has set his affection on you. You are his. And you, you, so you are not only experiencing some resistance, but just know you are his. He has chosen you. You are a foreigner, perhaps, but a chosen foreigner. You are rejected by some in the culture, but you are selected by him. You are the selected rejected, the chosen foreigners, the elect exiles. There's this duality of our identity. Uh, and so we're going to see how that works out through the whole book. So tonight we're going to read, uh, I had planned to do th- verses 3 through 12, but we may just do verses 3 through 9. So let me read verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 9, which is our passage tonight. It is a dense passage, and that's good because I'm a dense preacher, and uh, so this should work well. But uh, verses 3 through 9 in the original language, which is Greek, is one sentence. So I can't break it up. I'm going to do the whole sentence. And uh, so uh, here we go. So beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, there are some in the room tonight who are suffering, who are struggling. All of us have suffered. All of us will suffer. 
but there are some tonight who are experiencing various trials, as this passage mentions, various trials. And so, Lord, I simply want to pray tonight that you would come and show yourself to those experiencing difficulty, that you would refresh, that your spirit would blow upon their hearts with fresh hope, with fresh faith, with fresh courage, and Lord, that they would find themselves moving from discouragement and despair to worship. They would find themselves moving from hopelessness to hope, from emptiness to joy. Lord, only you can do this. So come, Spirit of God, speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm just going to walk through this long sentence a little bit at a time. Uh, and this is just an exhortation. This, this, this entire sentence, these verses, is really just an exhortation. And I'm going to pull out kind of two highlights in the passage. The first is that suffering believers are to praise God. That's where he starts. Suffering believers are to praise God. And secondly, suffering believers are to rejoice in trials. Suffering believers are to praise God. And secondly, suffering believers are to rejoice in trials. And I I trust the Lord will speak to all of us uh, through this. First of all, suffering believers are to praise God. The first word of the sentence is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when this word is used of God, it means the word blessed or blessed. It doesn't mean like we bless God or something like that, like he, is, like he blesses us. It doesn't mean that. He doesn't need our blessing. God is independent. He is perfect. He is glorious all on his own. And nothing we can say or do adds to his character. So we're not blessing him in that way. We are rather, the word blessed here means to speak well of. It means to praise, and that's why the NIV translates this passage, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So to suffering Christians, this is sort of of counterintuitive. This is the starting point. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The starting point in response in this letter to suffering Christians is to look to God and to praise God. And as I, as I prayed, some of us are suffering tonight, and every one of us will suffer. This letter is either something that will encourage us and meet us where we live, or it's preparatory for your next round of suffering. But if you live any length of time in this fallen world, you will suffer. And so the, this letter addressed to those who are experiencing resistance and persecution begins, I just can't emphasize this enough, it begins with looking to God in praise. And when we are suffering, there are many, many places that we can look when trials come, but God says, look to him. And that answer is so simple that it almost seems trite. It almost seems like, well, why? Yeah, of course, look to God, but give me something I can really do. Give me something that will fix the mess. Give me something that will alleviate the pain. Give me something that will solve the problem. And that's not where he starts. Well, he does give you something that will solve the problem, but it's not what we think it would be. He says, look to him. What we need in suffering is a slow, thoughtful consideration of God. We may need a slow, thoughtful, meaningful consideration 
of what Christ has done for us. And that's where he starts. We need perspective. What you most need in your suffering is not a fix. What you most need is perspective. You most need a vision, a view, an understanding, not of your circumstances, not of the problem, but of God. That's what we need. We need perspective to navigate our troubles. And this is where he starts with the suffering Christians in Asia Minor. He starts with the name. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are suffering, but we're going to start with praising God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one the chosen one. He's reminding them immediately of Christ, the one who has come that was promised from the very beginning of the Bible. The whole Old Testament points to him. He has come. He is the chosen anointed one. Praise be to him and his father. Not only Christ, but he is Jesus Christ. Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Jesus has come. Jesus is not just, it is his name. It is his personal name, but he's appropriately named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Lord rescues. So in the midst of your trouble, here's what he says. Praise the God who has sent the Messiah, who has sent the chosen anointed one who has come to rescue, who has come to save his people from their sins, who has come to deliver. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only Messiah. He's not only the one who saves. He is the one who rules over all. Praise the Lord. That's not just a flippant phrase. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Just to kind of toss out there. Lord means he rules. Your enemies do not rule. Your boss does not rule. Your neighbor does not rule. Your cancer does not rule. Your troubles do not rule. Jesus rules. And so from the beginning, he wants everybody to get their sight set. Let's get our eyes off our circumstances. Let's get our eyes off the difficulties. Let's get our eyes off the what ifs. And let's look up and say, speak well of, praise the father. He's our father. We're his children. We're in his family. He cares for us. And he has sent the ruling one who saves the Messiah. That's what verse 3 means. That's where he points them. To look up. The father has sent his son to rescue us. And what has his son done? done? What has the father done? Well, according to his great mercy, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. Peter says, when trials come, remember you have new life. You have spiritual life. You have been born anew. I mean, this is absolutely earth shattering. You were spiritually dead. The Bible says it, it, it is not uh, in any way uh, flattering to us. The Bible says we were spiritually dead, enemies of God. But you have been brought to life. You've been born to new life. 
You are God's friend. You have moved from death to life. You have moved from darkness. You lived in utter spiritual darkness, and now you are in the light because you have been born anew. You move from unbelief to belief. The Spirit gives us, the Bible teaches, the Spirit gives us new birth, and he lives in us. He lives in us. So no matter what is happening out there, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, for we have been born anew. And the Spirit of God lives in us. Listen, there is no greater change imaginable than moving from death to life. There is no greater change. There is no greater cataclysmic event imaginable. Because the Spirit of God comes in us. He grants us new life. He gives us new desires. And he begins to change us and make us more and more like Christ. He gives us faith. He gives us a vision of the Lord. He speaks to us from the Spirit, uh, from the Scripture. He illuminates the Scripture to our hearts and mind. He convicts us of sin. He makes us certain of the Father's forgiveness for our sin as we confess and trust in Jesus. So you have been born anew into a new life. This is everything. It's not like, well, what good is it if I'm born again? I still got to pay my bills. I'm still late on my bills. I still don't have a job. Don't tell me I'm born again. Oh, Peter says, no, you need to know you're born again. That changes everything. We're born again, what does he say? To a living hope. Don't be hopeless, he says. You have a living hope. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection changed everything for Paul. And that's why he says, I have a hope. I just don't have a, a stagnant hope. I don't, just don't have a, I'm hoping for hope. I have an alive hope because Jesus is alive. Think about how that played out in Peter's life. If you're new to the Bible, you might not know, but Peter actually denied Jesus right before he was crucified. So Peter didn't understand why Jesus was being crucified. Later he did, but at the time he didn't get it. And he denied Jesus and all of Peter's life hopes died on a cross. He invested his life. He left everything that he had. He followed Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah, the chosen one. But likely with the other disciples, he expected some kind of an earthly kingdom and he didn't see it happening. Jesus died and his last event before Jesus died is to deny him. The one who loved him, chose him, cared for him, he denied him. So all of Peter's hopes in that moment are absolutely crushed until Jesus rises from the dead and appears to him and forgives him and then calls him to go love his people. The resurrection, talk about living hope. Peter saw his hopes die and rise with Jesus and it completely changed him. So that Christianity for Peter, it's not just embracing some ethical system. It's not just some behavioral code. It's not a set of moral values or family values. I hope you know that is not Christianity. That is not what it means to become a Christian, to embrace some kind of ethical code that makes us acceptable before God. The Bible teaches that Christianity is faith in a person, not a code. And that person is living. It is Jesus Christ. And we are joined to him so that his life is credited to us and his power lives in us. So he says, there's a living hope. He is alive. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
I love it that the Bible says our, when we become new people, Christians, that it calls it being born again. I love that. And here's why. Because we did not have anything to do with our births, physically speaking. It's such a telling description. What did you contribute to your birth? You don't give yourself birth. No one comes up to you on your birthday and says, congratulations, you did it. 35 years ago today, you did it. Amazing. Amazing that you created yourself and grew yourself for nine months. And talk about coming out the birth canal. You got it down, man. You were amazing. No, no, you didn't do anything. Physical birth is not something that we make happen. It's something that happens to us. And that's why he's saying, praise God, because something has happened to you that makes you completely different. You have been born again. That's why he says it's according to his great mercy. Why were you born again? Mercy. That's what he says here. Forget all the troubles. Forget the suffering. Let's just consider that I know the living God and that my sins are forgiven and that I'm joined to Jesus Christ and that I had nothing to do with it. According to his mercy. Mercy is when God reaches down to someone who is unable to help themselves and he brings them assistance and help. That's mercy. You were unwilling to follow the Lord. You were unable to convert yourself. And by mercy, he reached down and gave you new birth. And Peter says to suffering people, praise God for these truths. These aren't, these aren't just dry answers to some catechism question. And I'm for catechism. I don't say that in a disparaging way. But these aren't dry answers to some catechism you memorized as a kid. This is your life. This kind of stuff is what sustains you in suffering. And that's why I'm just walking through and saying what every word means. Because I can give you five tips to suffering. A, you'll forget them before you get out the door. And B, they won't do you any good for me to give you five power lessons, three motivations. But Peter doesn't say, here's three motivations. You're great. You're what? No. He says, get your eyes on God and then start reviewing what this God has done for you and who Jesus is. He has shown mercy on us. Why were we born again? According to his great mercy. How were we born again? He caused us to be born again. He caused it to happen. So when we are suffering or struggling or tempted, it's, it's healthy to look back at what he has done. And when we are losing hope for a relationship, when we are losing hope for a financial situation, when we are losing hope for our health It sounds like, what good does it do? But to fix our eyes on an empty tomb, that's what Peter says. You have no hope if he's in the tomb. But if he is alive, you have all hope, and it is a living, breathing, life-changing hope. And he lives in you. We're also called to bless him not only for what he did in the past, but for what awaits us. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Praise him for that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the Jesus who's alive to what did he cause us to be uh, born again to a living 
I'm sorry, two, an inheritance that is imperishable, it is living, to an, imper- to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he says, look to the past and see what Jesus did for you, and now look to the future. Okay, get your eyes off what's going right here. Get your eyes off what's going right here, and look way down the road to the future and what's there, an inheritance. So he reminds them from the outside, they may have, they have been, some of these folks have been disinherited. Oh, you converted to Christianity, you're out of the family. Oh, you've converted to Christianity, the family farm is not yours. It will go to another family member. It'll go to a stranger before it goes to you. You left the faith. Or you denied the faith by becoming a Christian. So many of them have been disinherited. And he says, listen, you've got an inheritance that awaits you. What is that inheritance? It is... It's the kingdom of God. It's eternal life. It is the new heavens and the new earth. It is ultimately Jesus himself, the one on the throne who rules and reigns in glory. It is a future dwelling that has a future existence in the presence of God. It is new heaven and new earth. It is, it is heaven. It is uh, a resurrection body living before the Lord eternally in a new environment, a new world, a new creation. And what does he say about that? It's imperishable. The new heavens and new earth are imperishable. That is, they cannot wear out. Perish, you know what perish is? Like if you have food and it, it's, you know, that by a certain date it perishes, it means it, it goes bad, it decays, it dies. Something that perishes is something that dies. So he's saying this new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of God, your relationship with Jesus will not decay. It will not die. Everything on earth is subject to decay, starting with us. We're all getting older. We're all slowly dying. Everything around us dies and decays. That great new car that you bought five or six years ago is no longer that great new car. Or even back it up, that that shirt that you bought one year ago and has been washed regularly is not that great shirt anymore. So everything we know decays and perishes, but heaven does not because it is imperishable. It is death proof. You're, you're going into a relationship. You're, you're, you're ex- going to experience an existence that is death proof. Think about that. He says it is undefiled. That is, it is untainted by sin. Defiling is sin. The pollution of sin is completely gone in heaven. It is, it is nothing impure is in heaven. It is undefiled. It is sin-proof. There is no hatred. Everything about the things they are experiencing that just have to do with sin. There's no rejection. There's no gossip. There is no slander. There is no abuse in heaven of all kinds. There is no uh, unfaithfulness in a relationship. There's no lying or deception to a person. There's no stealing from a person. There's no just resisting and rejecting and ignoring all the sins. There's no pride or selfishness. He's saying that there's coming a day when you will, the new heavens, your, your inheritance in Jesus will be undefiled. It will be sin-proof. It will be imperishable, death-proof. It will be undefiled. It will be sin-proof. It will be unfading, he says. It will never dim or lose its beauty or glory. It is eternal Perfection. You will see Jesus. You will be like him. You will be with him. It will be 
eternal, never ending. After every day, there will be another day. And after that day, there will be another day. And after a thousand years, there'll be another thousand. And after a million years, there will be another million. It will not fade or dim or come to an end or you will never grow familiar. Wow. Okay. Heaven. What's like, what's after this? Because I've been here like 5 million years. I think I've seen it all. I know everybody I'm looking for an adventure. You will, it will never occur to you. It's perfection. It's what you were created for. And he's saying that is coming an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. You may be disinherited. You may be resisted. You may be rejected. You may be fired. You may not be chosen by people, but you are chosen by God. And he will usher you into an existence that is... Here's what's really happening. He can't even describe how great it is. So you just have to say all the negatives. Like we all know death. Well, that won't be there. Uh, We all know sin. That's not going to be there. We know everything is fades and comes to an end and grows. Oh, not that. Not this place. Not this relationship. Not this inheritance. He can't even describe it. It's so glorious. He just has to say what it's not. And he tells them to think about it in their difficulty. Not only is the inheritance death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof. Look at this. This is good news. It is kept in heaven for you. Verse 4. It is kept in heaven for you. God is guarding it. No one can take it. No one can affect it. They can take your possessions. They can take your reputation. They can take your money. They can take your life. But they can't touch this because God is keeping it for you. Listen, this is a vision to live by. This is a vision to live by that where we're headed in time and space, where we're going, the the environment that awaits us much sooner than we know is so far beyond description that that needs to come into the today and inform our attitude, our decisions What's important, what matters, what I'm excited about, what I'm investing my time in, what comforts me, what I run to when I'm lonely, discouraged, depressed, whatever. He's bringing these things. It sounds so ethereal, doesn't it? I mean, like he knows that people have lost their jobs and been kicked out of their families. And he's talking about imperishable, undefiled. What? What? Because we don't think this way. We, the reality is this perspective changes everything. It, it seems out there. It requires us to think. It requires us to meditate. It requires us to pray. It requires us to stop the busyness and get a vision of God and what he's doing. And when we do, things look different than we thought they did before we paused and got God's perspective. His perspective is often very, very different from mine. We can look ahead and know what a great inheritance we have in a new heavens and a new earth. The ultimate inheritance is we receive, we we have received Jesus. He is our inheritance. We know what awaits us and we can be certain. Listen, there is no certainty about your job. There is no certainty about your health. There's no certainty about your relationships and there's no certainty about your Christian relationships. I wish I could tell you, make friends with believers because it'll never go wrong. Some people are laughing like, oh, yeah. Uh, No, it'll go wrong. There's grace when it goes wrong. There's the hope of God and heaven looks a lot better, you know? Just go, wow, it's going to be great there. But, But there is no certain, but this is certain. 
It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And if that's not enough, God is keeping it and holding onto it. Why is he telling us all of this? Because if we can get a vision of what's coming, it affects our endurance. It affects our perseverance. Many years ago, maybe 20 years, I don't know. I pulled this out of a file. I didn't even know how long ago. But many years ago, uh, I heard C.J. Mahaney tell a story. And, uh, and I had this story, and I just read it, and I thought, this is such a great example. It's such a great illustration of this very point, that if we're looking ahead to the future or to something in front of us that's glorious, how much it can empower us for endurance today. This is the account. It's an account of a woman named Florence Chadwick. And the story reads, in 1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. I've been on a, uh, a, a boat, a ferry. No, it wasn't a ferry. It went fast. It was a, it was a fast boat because I got sick on it, I remember. But I was on a fast boat from mainland California, and I don't remember how long it took to, to Catalina. But she was going to swim this, like her and her arms and legs and stuff. I was in a boat long enough to get really sick, and she was going to go out there and swim it. So it's, I don't know the distance. I didn't look it up but it's really long. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. It always is. The water in California is always chilly, but it was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that would accompany her. For 15 hours, she swam. 15 hours. She begged to be taken out. But her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore was not far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she just stopped swimming, and she was pulled out. The boats made for the shore, and she discovered it was a mere half mile away, which however far it was, that's not far. The next day she gave a news conference. What she said in effect was this, quote, I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. You see, a vision for our destination empowers us today. It strengthens our resolve. It empowers us to, what is, what is this all about? To stand firm when we are resisted for following Jesus. When it gets difficult, when it gets hard, Peter says, think about the inheritance. Think about the imperishable. Read the end of Revelation if you need to know a little bit more about what that's like. But read, uh, think about the imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It, it's, it's a vision of our destination, and it is assured because it is kept by God. You aren't working to earn it. You aren't working to keep it. He will keep it, but he is calling you to it. And he is calling us to press on towards him and towards our inheritance. The fact the inheritance is there doesn't mean give up. It means we have strength and faith to trust him to get us to our destination, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is a living hope. A living hope. And not only will he guard our inheritance, he guards us. Look at verse 4. An unfading, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So he guards us, but he guards us through faith. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that we need to continue to believe. He guards us, but we have to take all of the New Testament warnings about falling away to heart. Whenever the New Testament warns us about apostatizing, about falling away from God, about turning and leaving God and his people, we need to take those warnings very seriously. We need to continue to believe, but he is empowering and he is guarding us in our belief. So which is it? Is it, is it he preserves us or we persevere? Is it the preservation of the saints? He preserves us. Or is it the perseverance of the saints? We keep going. It's both. This verse says it's both. He guards us through faith, not his faith, but through our faith. So the one who has been genuinely born again, who has the spirit dwelling in them, will ultimately make it to the, to the end, to the unfading inheritance. We'll ultimately make it. And that's why he says, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God will see us to the end. So we take seriously those warnings that we do continue to trust, we do continue to believe, but we also know that it is God who secures eternity for us. It's, it's both. And to lean on one without the other isn't a balanced, isn't, there's a mystery of how that works together, but it's, it's both. We believe because he is sustaining our belief is maybe the way we could say it. So what's the first thing to a suffering person? Bless the Lord for all of these things, for what he's done in the past to mercifully give us new life, to give us a living hope, to what he's going to do in the future, to give us an inheritance, to keep that for us and to guard our faith. Praise God for all of that work of the Lord, he says. So first of all, suffering believers are to praise the Lord. Secondly, suffering believers are to rejoice in trials. If it sounds crazy to be praising God when it's not going right, it really sounds crazy to be joyful when it's not going right. But that's what he says. An awareness of what God's done, it produces joy. Look at verse 6. When he introduces trials, he, he frames the talk of trials with joy. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So there's joy in what the Lord has done in the midst of our trials. Verse 8, uh, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. In between those two joys, he starts talking about difficulty and trials. For sustaining joy. Now, I want to be very practical here. Some of this has sounded, woohoo, is this kind of a, is this like a theology class? Or something? No, these are just like the actual words, and I'm trying to, I hope this is clear. I don't know if it's clear. I hope it is. Um, but, uh, but I want to be very practical here because I want you to think about a trial. That's why I'm not going to list one. It says various trials. So that's why I'm not going to say, when you're persecuted, blah, 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 and persecution, blah, blah, because that may not be your trial. He says various trials. That's why I'm not going to say if you're suffering physically and you're unhealthy because some of us are, some of us aren't. If you are lonely, so I, I don't know what your trial is, but think about a trial you're currently facing. Could be opposition from someone. It could be a work challenge you're facing. Maybe you're underemployed. Maybe you're unemployed. Could be a financial crisis that you're in. It could be a challenge in your marriage. It could be a challenge with your children. It could be a challenge with your parents. Um, you could be battling depression. You could be struggling with some type of uh, enslaving sin, what we might call an addiction, an addictive behavior. You could be suffering with something like that. So what is it? It could be uh, grief. You could be going through grief tonight. Uh, you could be still living with the remnants of pain for what someone did to you in your past. 
So what is the suffering you face? Think about that. And God wants you to ultimately experience his joy in the midst of that difficulty. Here's how. First of all, how do we rejoice in the particular trial you're thinking of? This is really a customized sermon. I'm just, it's all in your head, whatever it is. <laughs> Very customized. Uh, number one, we realize that that trial that you're thinking about, it's temporary. It's temporary. Verse 9, if necessary, you have, it says, you rejoice. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Your trials are a little while. How long will this trial go on? I can't give you days, but I can say in light of eternity, the Lord says a little while. A little while. That gives some perspective. Think, think back. Now, don't think about that trial. Think about another one. Think back on a trial that just seemed terrible to you in the past. Maybe you're a Christian and you thought, how can I ever get past this? Will life ever feel the same? I mean, it was, it was interesting for me just doing that exercise. I can remember a time earlier in my life while, while we were here living in this church, I can remember a season where it took everything I had because of some discouragements I was walking through. It had every, took everything I had to get up here and preach. The pastors and, and their wives knew, knew about it. It wasn't any kind of big secret or something like that. But just walking through a real difficult, I can remember it took every ounce of faith I had to get up and just preach God's word because I was going through a hard time like you've gone through. Maybe you're in that tonight. Tonight I was realizing, wow, I'm, I don't have that season right now. I don't have one where I go, wow, this is one of the hardest times of my life. I don't have that. I thought it would never feel the same. And yet it lasted for a little while and things are different. I can think back to a season in our life. This isn't personal. This is corporate, a family. This is a family trial. I can think back to a time in our life where as a church, we experienced a, what I might call a season of disunity. And if you were in our church, you would remember uh, we had long family meetings that nobody wanted to come to, uh, least of all me who was leading, not leading them all, but a part of them. Uh, but it was a tough time. And I can remember thinking at that time, will church life ever feel like what is normal? What is normal church life? I read the New Testament and I go, wow, a lot of these churches, if that's normal, give me abnormal because they got major problems going on. But I can remember thinking, would ever feel, would ever get back to the way it was or anything like that? It lasted for a little while. The Lord worked. The Lord unified. The Lord drew us together. The Lord gave, preserved us. He kept us. He worked in us and moved us to our next season. And guess what? We've got another big trial coming up. I don't know what it is. I'm not a prophet. I don't know what it is, but I just, I've read the Bible and I've lived life as have you. And I've been in a few churches and I just know that the, the water is fairly calm now, but there's another trial coming a big one, maybe a bigger one, maybe a bigger storm than the last. I don't know. And that one will last a little while. And then that's just the way it works. It's a little while. And sometimes that perspective is very helpful. Now, we don't say that to someone in the midst of their trial. So if I'm saying that to you in the midst of their trial, I don't know. So I can say it from here. But I wouldn't come into your hospital room and you're in a lot of pain and go, oh, get over it. It's just a little while. Okay? It's not, it doesn't sound real compassionate. This is a great message if you're not going through a trial. But even if you are, this is what the Lord says to you. So we have to be, we have to be sensitive in the way we share this. But it is a little while. It will be over soon. And when you know that, you can look beyond the trial to the Lord and find hope outside of the trial. 
So in the midst of the trial, it's good to say, this is a little while. But on the other side of this, the Lord has something new for me that we're going to talk about in just a minute. The Lord has something new for me. This is how Jesus lived. Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus... The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked past the cross to the joy that was on the other side. It's a little while we look past it to the joy on the other side, ultimately our inheritance in the Lord. So trials are temporary. Secondly, trials strengthen our faith. It says we are grieved by various trials So that the tested, verse 7, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it strengthens us. He compares it to gold. Our faith is more precious than gold that has been tried. Gold is burned. I think smelting is the name of the process. It is put through fire so the impurities burn out. Gold is valuable. Gold is lasting. But he says here that our faith is more precious than gold. Gold perishes, though it's tested by fire. So it has its impurities worked out, but it still doesn't last. Gold, our relationship with God, our inheritance is eternal. And so he's saying a a proven, genuine, gone through the fire kind of a faith is precious and valuable, and it is enduring. Listen, I wish there was another way. We all wish there was another way. But the Lord has designed that the way our faith is proved genuine, the way it is purified, the way we are strengthened, the way we are matured, is to go through trial, go through pain, go through difficulty, and meet the Lord. In the midst of that pain, we encounter him in a way that we would never encounter him outside of that pain and difficulty. And we come out on the other side purified, precious, uh, and and, um, strengthened and mature. I wish you could grow mature without trial, but it does not happen. And so he's saying you're you're being, it's when you're in trial, you go to verses three through five and say, okay, God has caused me to be born again. Jesus is a living hope for me. We don't, we don't think of that sometimes in the same way when things are going great. Give me a happy Psalm. Give me a joyful Psalm. Give me a high five. Give me some pleasant thoughts. But man, when we are going through a difficult time, it is clinging to Jesus. The strongest faith is often found in those who've experienced the most resistance, the most trial. It it, it purifies and strengthens so that we can, well, how can we rejoice? Why is going through a fire? Who's singing going through a fire? You sing at a party. You don't sing in a fire. Because in the fire, you say, the Lord is at work in me. The Lord is changing me. The Lord is strengthening and purifying me. And that is a wonderful thing. Ed Clowney said this. He's a commentator. He said, our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. That's what the process is, tested by fire. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. Because in the fire, it's not about me. I'm crying out to him. I run to him and I find his strength. When there's not a trial, I can run to me and be self-sufficient. So there's a joy because it's temporary. There's a joy because the Lord is purifying us. And lastly, there's a joy because trials bring glory to Jesus. 
That's what he says. He says in verse 7 again, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Christ is his return. So what he's saying is when Christ returns, the difficulties, the little while challenges, the various trials for a little while that you have experienced... That faith that you, that resting in Jesus, that confidence in Jesus, that running to Jesus, that time you cried out and could say, I don't even know how to pray. I'm just weeping before the Lord. I don't even know what to say. I'm just saying, Jesus, help me. All I can say is help me over and over. Help me. But that little looking to Jesus, when he returns, that is going to be found to bring great praise and glory and honor to him. Great praise. The Lord is going to receive attention and praise and glory through our faith and our difficulties. And so it brings glory to Jesus. If our life is to glorify the Lord, I can look at a trial and say, Lord, man, I hate this. This stinks. I can't stand this. But Lord, change my heart. Help me trust you. I'm crying out to you. And that leaning on him will bring him glory. That's what he's saying. And so there's a joy in that to go, if this will be turned around for his glory, I can embrace it with joy. Ed Clowney said this phrase, this stuck with me. Sufferings now, glories to follow. Sufferings now, glories to follow. There's glory ahead of us. Glory to Jesus. See, we should, believe a, we should be absolute believers in a prosperity gospel. The question is, when is the prosperity? Oh, it's coming when Jesus returns. It's sufferings now, glories later, and glories forever that outweigh the sufferings. Yes, we will prosper because of the gospel. That may not affect our bank book right now. It may not affect our health. It may not affect everything. We may not be, be living the American dream. That's not the definition of prosperity. Prosperity is a proven faith that results in praise and glory and honor to the Lord. Prosperity is an undefiled inheritance, an eternal inheritance, and that's what we receive, even though right now we struggle. Paul says this light momentary affliction, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's, accord, it's all according to his mercy. So when we think of what he's done, when we think of what he will do, it is to stir our hearts with, with what does he say? With love for him, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. He's saying, to th- even though you don't see him, Peter did, but they didn't. Even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. He's encouraging them. You're trusting in the midst of difficulty and you're rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible. It's too good for words. It's too deep for words, filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That only happens with God's perspective. We can only see in the midst of the difficulty or preparing for the next difficulty. We can only see this is going to bring him glory and this is going to bring me joy. I find joy in his glory. We can only see that with his perspective and we only get his perspective through the scripture. And that's why in the midst of difficulty, we must run right here. We must bury our nose right here and not come up for air until we see him, until we've met him, until we've encountered him. Because there's no other fix. There's no other answer. And the reason we're in the trial is because he wants us here. He wants us to see him.
He wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to give us a glimpse of glory. He wants to motivate us by his grace and empower us to continue on to know the shore is just a little further. And when we reach the shore, it's all glory forever. So how does Peter start talking to people who are in difficult times, grieved by trials? Praise him in the midst of trial. Blessed be his name and rejoice in the midst of suffering. Praise God and rejoice. It sounds simple, but if we see it in his word, it can be our reality. And even if the circumstances don't change, if our vision of God changes, everything changes. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.